Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast seeking out insights to better train our human habits of media consumption. Today we're talking about pet culture, why our pets amuse us so, how we build on that to indulge in incessant memeing, pet-related TV, pet Halloween costume, other attempts to fill the existential void with cute furriness. I'm Mark Linton Meyer, trained to recognize over 1,000 words. I'm Erica Spires, fluent in five languages of cat. And I'm Brian Hurt, and between my Jack Russell and me, one of us is pretty well-trained. I'm Hannah Brannigan. I am a dog trainer and a dog training instructor. And dog training podcaster. And a dog training podcaster as well, yes. So I was looking for a guest for this topic and started searching on animal-related podcasts, and I think yours was the second I checked out that the title Drinking from the Toilet rather sold me immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Fair warning as people are coming in so they know what to expect. <laughs> I've got to say that, as they say, the internet has made us all like have imposter complexes and inferiority complexes because of all the great things we see people doing. But your podcast really made me feel like a terrible pet owner because I just never been good at, at training my dog. I'm on my third as an adult, and I just I feel like it's been a, a string of failures. I've, I've given a lot of love, but I feel like man, I should just either do something about it or not listen because it was a shame spiral of wait a second. When you say, oh, when this is a mistake everyone makes, it's like, well, well, that's good. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think we have expectations that we should know a lot more about dog training, considering no one has ever taught us when we come into it. It's like, it's a lot like parenting. I actually think there's a lot of parallels with parenting and that like they just let you go home from the hospital with this baby and there's no manual. And one of the first things you'll discover is that everyone in Target is an expert on parenting and everyone at the dog park is an expert on dog training. So they have a lot of free advice, which is worth exactly what you pay for it. That's an unreasonable expectation. We're doing this topic because Erica voiced the idea, but you specifically said cats. And we have refocused this since Hannah's... Actually, Hannah, do you do anything with like multi-pet homes or you know anything that involves not strictly dogs? I have done some with cats. I've worked with personally a lot of different kinds of animals, cats, horses, chickens, some other birds and a little bit with some exotics, but you know, my primary focus is is on dogs. And I have no hate here for dogs, PS. Like I don't want you to think that just because I'm obsessed with my cat and cats in general, that I also don't think dogs are awesome or any other pet. I think what made me realize this is I mostly partially because the internet is a dark and full of many terrors. One of the main things that I can do that is going to make people happy and myself happy and not start me in a an argument is to post pictures of my cat or my husband and me with my cat. And a lot of people do this, right? We post pictures of our pets because they make us happy. There's something absolutely relatable about seeing somebody with a pet and seeing that love that you get between the two of you. And I thought it's such a huge, also a huge part of the internet, whether we're following accounts on Instagram that just have like cute little pet memes or seeing our friends post about pets or watching pet videos. It's a huge part of pop culture that we may not think of as pop culture, but it kind of is. 
we've of course gotten a guest that's wildly overqualified to talk about some of the things that we're just mentioning, but it seemed a good place to start. Whether you're approaching this in professional capacity has sort of how much that has twisted your attitude towards animals. That I, what I hear at least from the dog training stuff that I've done is, oh, you have to sort of understand dog psychology, pretend that you're the leader of the pack, things like this, which is something that is maybe fundamentally foreign to most people that either want to treat it as part of the family or something to amuse me when I feel like it or whatever. Well, I don't think that those things are exclusive. I mean, I am a dog trainer. I do enjoy dog training as a hobby. I'm also a dog owner. I mean, as you can kind of see behind me, my dogs live with me very comfortable lives. And the primary reason that I have dogs is because I like to go for walks. I like to hike. I like to snuggle on the couch and have warm, fuzzy animals with me watching you know, Netflix at night. So you can be a pet owner without being an obsessed pet nerd or dog nerds. Like, you know, the, the people that I mostly spend time with, we've crossed the line. Like, it's not that we watched an episode of Doctor Who and enjoyed it. We didn't even watch like the whole series of all of them and have a favorite doctor. But like we go to conventions and talk about dogs. Like that's the level of nerding out that we like to do. But we also, at least people in my circle, have dogs just because we really enjoy them. So as part of being a dog nerd, your words, like seeing mistakes in like pop culture of how training is portrayed. I don't want to say that you're judgmental, but you're attuned to things that are like common misconceptions or seeing something you're like, yeah, you are doing the exact opposite of what you need to be doing. I will go ahead and own that I can be judgmental. That's something I'm working on as a personal growth project, but that's between me and my therapist. Also a dog. No, go yeah. on. <laughs> it can be frustrating to see how animal behavior is sometimes portrayed in the media. You have to understand the function, right? So I, that's where I try to aim my judgmental energy. I don't usually feel judgmental of like ordinary people out and, you know, out and about with their pets. Because again, there's no expectation if you didn't go to school for this, how would you have been exposed to this information? We can often feel frustrated, those of us who work in the industry, with some of the popular articles and TV shows and stuff that the headlines that get shared and make the news because they can be really inaccurate. And like every other headline, they're designed to be clickable, not to be accurate. What they put on TV is designed to keep people's attention, not to educate you necessarily. They are usually not really good sources of information and can sometimes do more harm than good. So, you know, again, to tie it back to the therapy, it's like if instead of going to professional for your mental health, you watch a lot of Dr. Phil and try to apply it that way, like it's it's just as dangerous in some ways. What sure. are some examples? Or have there been some in recent history that have been extremely clickable, but extremely problematic? The vast majority of the TV shows that have been popular in the last 10 years, they're selected for drama. And good dog training should actually be fairly boring to look at. Like there shouldn't be a lot of drama. There shouldn't be a lot of conflict. Just like again, good parenting, good family skills, any relational skill, it shouldn't be a whole lot to look at. But that doesn't make for very good TV. So we see things that are set up to deliberately trigger more dramatic behavior in the dogs and the people. And of course, I'm sure there's a lot of editing to, to again, emphasize that. It's very much a don't try this at home kind of thing. You know, if you have a dog that, for example, is lunging and barking at other dogs, super common behavior problem. There's a lot behind a lot that goes into it. And it can be really frustrating. If you have a dog you know, with this set of behaviors, you want to take them for a walk. But every time your neighbor goes by you know, with their dog on leash, your dog stares at them and lunges and barks and pulls on leash. It's really embarrassing. It's really frustrating. If you were to have a qualified skilled professional come in and help you with that, one of the first things that we would do is set you up so that when you're walking your dog, your walks are really boring. And that behavior, you don't see that behavior. You don't see the lunging and the barking and the teeth and the saliva flying everywhere. And it would look a lot like you going for short walks where you use a lot of treats to reinforce the behavior that you want. And you get very bored watching it in 
90 seconds and you switch the channel. But if you see it on TV, a TV trainer doing the same sort of thing, they're going to deliberately set it up so that they get the maximum display of that aggressive behavior to make it more exciting, to make it more interesting. And that's not very good training. And also, it's a good way to get people and dogs hurt. So it's not best practices at all. Occasionally, even the best dog trainer will make a mistake or will get dogs too close together and you'll see a little bit of that kind of erupt. But we consider that to actually be an error in judgment, (laughs) an error in the setup. Oh, I need to do something differently. So what do I need to change for the next session to make sure that this doesn't happen again? So that's one of the things that, you know, I look for when I'm referring to trainers. Do we see a lot of those accidental air quotes eruptions of that aggressive, dramatic behavior? Or it's not gonna be the most efficient way to address the behavior if that's what you're trying to eliminate. Pop culture is failing our pets. All right, I have to ask you a question since you're an expert, and maybe you can tell me. Uh, I have a question about something in specific. Just how accurate is the movie The Secret Life of Pets? I'm just like, does that happen? <laughs> Sorry, that's the, the animated one. Yeah, I'm trying to remember back. I know that I watched it, but I, I was very sleep deprived at the time with a small child. Yeah, they go on adventures in New York City. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me, let me redirect. So I recall reading, why did Charles Schultz design Snoopy that way to have all these adventures and have all these thoughts is because he felt bad for how bored the life of a dog is. So I like the fact that you do this competitive training and it, you know, I have a part border collie. And I always feel like she should have a job. We should have her on a farm rustling the sheep because I just can't give her enough interesting stuff to do. That sort of just goes to the the central ethical question of, you know, I love my pets, but they're my prisoners. Are they actually happy? I don't know. I think they are. How do you feel about that? That's actually a really good question. And there's a lot of ways we could go with that. I mean, first of all, what is happiness? Can we even define that for humans? I think that's a little bit of an existential question. For pets, for captive animals, I think it's a serious thing that we need to consider. It's very easy to believe and see where we do have pets that are kept in suboptimal conditions. And certainly, again, things you see on the news can be really extreme examples of that. And then, you know, you have the other extremes, working dogs, service dogs, and people have you know asked themselves and should ask themselves, is this an optimal life? My dog has a job, but they're working all the time. Is there a gray area in between? I'm like, for every ethical question, yes, almost certainly. One of the things that we look at is the enrichment of the life of the animal. And this is a measure that we borrow a lot from like the captive zoo community where quality of life for animals is a big deal. We can learn a lot from that and apply it to the dogs that live in our house. And so, you know, the goal is to provide an environment that gives them the opportunity to express, and I'm going to use air quotes here, natural behavior. There's a lot of questions around what is a natural behavior for a domesticated animal like a dog who's been living with us for thousands of years. And that's going to vary. A border collie is a really good example. What is normal for a border, your stereotypical border collie, it might be, you know, one end of the spectrum. And then you might have, you know, a mastiff or a greyhound or a basset hound on the other end of the spectrum. What's going to be normal for those dogs is going to be really different. And so what those dogs need to be behaviorally healthy can vary quite a lot. I think, again, in recent kind of culture, emphasis has been put on physical exercise. Again, some of that comes from some of the more popular TV shows. And the physical exercise really can be overemphasized. It is a piece of the behavioral health puzzle, but it's a small piece, just like it is for people. Should we all make sure that we get exercise and sunlight? Is it going to cure clinical depression? Ah, You know, ask your doctor. So not all behavior problems are going to be solved by walking your dog more. That's just going to make them more cardiovascularly fit. And if you have an active working breed like a Border Collie or a Malinois, they're just going to be harder to get them tired the next time. So we we need to go a little bit deeper and look at what can I give my dog 
to meet some of those other kind of cognitive mental wellness aspects of it and things like letting them work for their food through training, through anything that can simulate hunting, scavenging behavior. If you think dogs are evolved from a population of opportunistic scavengers, so letting them find their food through puzzle toys and food toys and playing like really cheap and easy hiding food caches around the house can work really well. We can stuff toys like Kongs and topples and let them work for their food that way. So there's a lot that you can do, even if you live in an apartment you know, without a farm and without sheep to give your dog stuff to do so that they're stimulating again, they're expressing those kind of normal doggy behaviors in a socially acceptable way. Because you're exactly right. If you have a dog that doesn't have a job and kind of needs one, they're going to find their own job basically is what happens. They're going to find their own ways to express those doggy behaviors, but they may be in ways that are less socially acceptable for your lifestyle. That observation about cardiovascular health. I'm totally stealing that from myself. Oh no, I shouldn't get too much exercise because it'll just make me harder to tire me out in the future. That's right. Well, I know Brian's solution was just get a second dog, which we tried with one of our dogs of, or at least considered for a while. Instead, this time around got a cat, which did not, letting the dog play with the cat does not fulfill that. But like allowing there to be more than one dog so you get that native socialization that a human just can't provide. I mean, that can sometimes be helpful. That's one piece of the puzzle. You got to look at the whole dog. Um, One of the things that we look at for a measure of health is the behavioral diversity. Now we're getting kind of nerdy, so you can stop me at any point here. But when we look at the variety of behaviors that the dog expresses over the course of their day, or even like over the course of the week, because days aren't always in the same. And if you have a dog that is sleeping way more than the average dog, we might look at them a little more closely. Like they're just laying around all the time, cats as well. Because just like if you have a person who's spending all of the day in bed and not getting up and not interacting and not expressing normal human behaviors, that's a a red flag that there is something that we need to look at behaviorally or mentally. On the other hand, you can have a dog that is exhibiting the same behavior over and over again. So if you have a dog that's really fixated on the front window and all they do is stand at the front window and you know wait for your neighbor to pull out of the driveway so that they can bark and they aren't laying down and sleeping during the day because dogs should sleep. That's air quotes, normal dog behavior is sleeping in the middle of the day. But your dog is so vigilant at that front window that it is crowding out some of that other normal expression of behavior. So some play with other dogs can be normal for some dogs. Also, kind of like people, most dogs outgrow a lot of that puppy style play that we tend to think of as what dogs should do. It's the rare five-year-old dog that enjoys going to the dog park and playing with a bunch of other strange dogs, just like kind of like it's the rare 38-year-old human that enjoys going to a nightclub. They exist, but it's way less common. There's a ton of nine to 18-month-old dogs that love going to the dog park and, and getting physical with other dogs. But between two and three, most of those dogs outgrow it and they become less interested and maybe a little bit irritated being around a lot of drunk dogs all the time. And they just want to hang out at home and maybe have a book club. And that's really very normal. So it depends and it can be part of it, but it's never going to be the whole thing. One of the things we we did kind of want to talk about during this is, you know, how that bond between humans and pets and what we can learn from them and what they can learn from us, you know, this coexistence. You did an episode where you talked a lot about reinforcing behavior in humans, similarly to how we reinforce behavior in pets. And the guest and you talked about with positive reinforcement, people tend to feel manipulated in a way that they don't with negative reinforcement. 
And I thought, what an interesting observation. It really gets you thinking about human behavior. If it's a child, positive reinforcement is typically seen as a good thing. But with adults, if you're not getting like almost like abuse from somebody, then it's considered like that person's manipulative. And I don't like how they're trying to change my behavior through like being too nice to me. I don't know if Mark and Brian have any thoughts about that either, but that's... That's a really uh, good point, Erica. You're really coming along with that. Good job. You stop it right now. I see what you're doing. (laughs) It's not just like you can catch more, what was it, more flies with honey. It seems like a more pointed point of trying to influence human behavior. But we do it with our animals. And why is it that we can't learn those same things that we do for our animals and apply it to human behavior. Is there something to be learned there? I'm sure there probably is. What 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 do you what would you say that you've learned from your dogs that you might apply to others, humans? <laughs> Pandora's box opened. I suspect, and I'm we're starting to get out of my area of expertise here, but from a human psychology perspective, how much of it is because what feels familiar to us feels more comfortable and very few of us were raised with an emphasis on positive reinforcement. So I think there's a, something there that says more about our society than it does about behavior specifically. People are complicated because we have all this verbal behavior, both kind of, you know, that we say out loud and then also that kind of happens like inside your head. And we tend to interact with the you know, those stories that we make up as if they are the real world, not necessarily interacting with what we can see and observe. So one of the things that I've found helpful for me is in backing off of the stories, putting myself into a more curious place and making sure that I'm really observing what's happening in front of me when it comes to other human behavior. Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing or am I actually observing what's actually happening? That's really helpful in having any kind of communication with another person, which is like the hardest thing. And I think also the better I get at looking for what I do like, putting that filter on how I'm watching other people, watching dogs, everything that happens around me, the better I get at paying attention to what I do like so that I could potentially reinforce it, but also just looking for what I do like rather than focusing on what I don't like. I'm a happier and more stable person than I was 15 years ago. I mean, I'm also 15 years older, 15 years more cynical, but I can definitely tell a difference on the days where I'm doing a better job, you know, with my kid, with my family, with my clients of focusing on, and I'm not talking about like false positivity, but like, okay, this seemed like a tough conversation, but here's one thing that I agree with. And I can focus on this one thing that I do agree with. And now we have some common ground and I have a way to talk to this person. I don't fall into the parts of myself that I don't like as much, that aren't as much fun to be, where I'm more defensive and judgmental and crabbier, just generally grumpier. All right, now we're going to ask Hannah some questions about her childhood. Um, (laughs) I didn't listen to that episode, Erica. I listened to the one on accidental behavior chains, which I then went on to share with my family because, of course, this is a mistake I make. But what really came through was something which I think you were observing already, that the human psychology and behavior is a key component of pet behavior. And in fact, it's kind of baked into the word pet. You're only a pet if you have a human owner. It's a relationship word. It's not a descriptor unto itself. In fact, as I was kind of getting into the weeds on that, I was wondering if a pet that you couldn't actually pet would even be a pet. And I was thinking of goldfish. So I'm deciding that maybe those aren't, but that's going down a road we don't need to. The relationship is such a key part of this. And that's, I know I mentioned the secret life of pets sort of in a joke earlier, but it's kind of odd to see movies about animals where the human relationship isn't 
always front and center all the time. And I remember as a, when I was younger, there was a movie called Milo and Otis about these two animals. And I don't quite know what to make. I'm a little older than Erica. I was working at a movie theater over the summer. And so I kept like seeing the end of Milo and Otis because I don't want to spoil the movie. I imagine it's a... Is this a dialogue-free journey across the country kind of thing or something? I never saw it. I'm pretty sure they had dialogue. I think they had voices. Their mouths didn't move like Babe the Pig or anything. (laughs) It was more like Snoopy. Their voices were being heard, but not coming out of their mouths. So I'm always so interested to see how animals are portrayed in pop culture, in part because it's, I think, as much as they're adorable and we like seeing them, we're really learning more about the people and their owners than we are about the animals themselves sometimes, right? I have a Jack Russell and... We don't groom her like one because she's a a long hair and we don't show her. So sometimes she kind of grows out and people have to ask us what she is. And we'll say, and of course, they always think of Eddie from Frasier. And he didn't behave like a Jack Russell does because he was like this super, not even that well-trained, but from what I understand from reading about him, they would like have to get him in like these really short takes because Jack Russell's don't sit and, and do shtick the way that other dogs do. So people were always sort of surprised that our dog didn't behave the way they expected that kind of, of dog to. What would you say is the funniest dog? What dog understands borscht belt humor, Brian? <laughs> that would be uh, the insult dog. What was his name? <laughs> Triumph, Triumph the insult comic dog. Triumph the insult dog. <laughs> <laughs> he got it. That's right. No, that was, I think, Robert Smigel's hand. Well, and says something, you're talking whether the mouths move or not. And I was like, oh, it just ruins the realism if their mouths don't move when the human voices come out of their dog mouths. <laughs> that there's some just weird conventions about, you know, we just had a, an episode on animation and uh, just of what we expect. It just sort of gets at the question of like, what do we want? Why would we want talking dogs? Like that's sort of a prime. There's some short story that I can't remember the name of, of like a kid who just, I just wish my dog would talk. And then of course it happens and it's just stupid and miserable. Like there's a reason that we don't have human beings like as slaves in our homes doing the things that dogs do, because that would be besides morally repugnant, just socially awkward. It's like, where are you going with this one? I don't understand. And I know I'm worried that I totally get where he's going with this. <laughs> where am I? I'm saying, what do we want out of, a, you know, a talking animal that's not just the same as like Elmo or something? You know, if we just want something cute and fuzzy that talks because that gets at something primal, this teddy bear sort of imaginary friend complex, that's one thing. But it seems like if we're wanting something that's actually about animals and not about our weird reflection of them, then I don't know, that just seems like a problem that an animator or somebody that's dealing with writing animal parts in fiction has to deal with. I noticed this when the original Lion King came out, that there were animal humans and that there were animal animals. Because, right, the lions have human mores and values, but then, like, uh, Simba, we eat the zebras and they become the grass. And so, okay, the zebras are just animals, but the lions are people. And as soon as we anthropomorphize a little bit, we've just decided it looks like a pet, but it's really just a a person that happens to be a dog. And I I feel like Family Guy really has hung a lampshade on that in a major way with Brian the dog because he's a family member. He's clearly a dog, but he also like like has human relationships and even like sexual relationships with women. And it's not even weird. It's just their universe. But he also eats vomit and does all the things that a dog does. And I've always wondered... 
why is it in like animated shows of animals, we have to put eyelashes on the girl animals, even if they're a species that doesn't grow hair like a frog? They always have big eyelashes. And we know that in real life, if anything, boys have better eyelashes than women. We pay a lot of money to get eyelash products. So I feel like that's already just a weird thing right there. But frogs, I think, also really like to invest in eyelashes. Like the la- yeah. lady frogs. Yeah, they're, they're really like big into L'Oreal. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that I was bringing up not having people in your house <laughs> was that we get something out of relationships with a dog that there's just that you can gaze into its eyes <laughs> in a way that even with your your beloved probably you don't want to do that so much <laughs> you know unless you've created a really weird idiosyncratic universe of just the two of you but like the dog that's the default relationship that we're getting something out of that that we just couldn't get otherwise well they're definitely safer than people because they can't talk they can't ask you an awkward question and we can assume whatever intent or you know, dialogue, you can talk for both sides of you and your dog. And you can't do that with another person because they're not going to follow your agenda, inevitably. It's sort of like having an internet boyfriend. <laughs> My cat, sometimes I'll look at him and realize that he and I have amazing communication, even though he doesn't speak English and I don't speak whatever his cat form is. Maybe there is a name for the nonverbal communication that you have with your pet. But there is a time also spent with them that passes certain types of understanding that you would have with verbal communication. And I I know based on the way he looks at me and how he hangs out with me, or even just how playful he is, I'm starting to understand really what he wants and what he means and what he needs from me. And honestly, I feel like we can't necessarily talk about pet culture right now without talking about what the pandemic has done to it. I don't think I would have had this good of communication with my cat if not for spending every day at home with him for the past year. He's like, he's my mate, you know, like we get each other now. Has that made you think about how good a thing it is for you to have gotten a cat that you maybe would have left at home all day? I mean, oh my God, it makes me feel guilty. I had a guilt dream about it the other day about going back to work and having somebody else watch after him because I was worried about him not having enough stimulation. And, but I was, I totally woke up and felt super guilty about this job that I don't yet have out in the world. And I do wonder what this is going to do, like what this pandemic is going to do to people and their their relationships with their pets once work goes back. And how are their pets going to react to that? Yeah, Hannah, what have you run across in, in the field, you and your all your clients regarding this issue? We don't know yet. If nothing else, the last year has proven that we can't predict anything. So we're always just guessing and making it up. There is a lot of concern in the industry about what will happen when people start going back to work, particularly for pets that were newly acquired under these conditions where everybody's home all of the time. I mean, not only do we not go to work, we don't go anywhere. Like we're literally home all the time. And so, you know, if you got a puppy last summer, that puppy is now, you know, approaching adulthood and has never really been alone. And so will these pets have the skills to be alone when people start going back to work, whatever that ends up looking like, you know, does that even look like it did before? Who knows? But we're you know, starting to see people are putting out blog posts and offering services to help introduce the idea of being alone more gradually. And again, making sure that the animal's needs are being met, even if the human can't physically be there. We are fortunate to some extent that most like the dogs and the cats do typically like their natural rest time is in the middle of the day. So that can work out pretty well with you know some accommodations. But we are concerned that we might see an increase in separation anxiety cases if a dog goes from you know having humans around all the time to all of a sudden everybody's gone for eight hours at a time. That's a big jump. So we're hopefully going to 
kind of hedge our bets and buffer against that by practicing shorter absences earlier on. So maybe you go, you know, leave your pet alone in, you know, whatever their safe space is going to be while you take out the trash and then you leave them alone while you go to the store for a while. And then you leave them alone while you're run a few errands and now it's a couple of hours and now it's, you know, three or four hours and then five hours and then, and then maybe you're gone for, for the day after making sure that they've got sufficient exercise, mental and physical, and you know, they have, again, all of their needs met before you leave. Man, you're good at this. So clearly, not that it's you know unhealthy for an animal to rely too much on the owner, but that can cause a transition when that is no longer possible. That is something that will have to be dealt with. What about people? I feel like there is a danger in, because of that simplicity of relating to your animal as opposed to people, that there's a reason that we have like the cat lady stereotype of somebody who owns 15 animals or whatever, or I don't want to make this a sexist thing because I feel like I'm in sort of in a perpetual state of pre-adolescence or something. There's some part of a personality that the pet brings out that I at least am a little wary about. <laughs> You're the pet nerd, Hannah. So at least I feel like you've professionalized your obsession. It is not merely... <laughs> being overly dependent as an individual on your pets. Yeah, I'm a little curious. Do you treat your dogs like babies as a pro? Because as a total amateur over here, I definitely do. Yes. So that's a thing, right? So people talk about, oh, you shouldn't treat your dogs like children. I think actually that depends a lot on how you treat your children. Most of the time we would actually be better off treating dogs more like children and treating children more like dogs in that don't make assumptions about what they already know. Don't make assumptions about what they think. Approach it as a teaching and communication task more than a disciplinary or I'm working on not being judgmental in this space, but because none of us got the manual of how to be a good parent. And if you're on the internet, especially if you're a mom, you can only do it wrong parenting a child. So whatever you do, you're, you will be wrong. And also, I think that applies to pets as well. So I think there is something to be said for recognizing that there are biological differences and behavioral differences between humans and any other species. And as long as we're acknowledging that, I don't think there's particularly anything wrong with thinking of your pet as a family member, you know, and again, respecting them as as an individual, but also just like kids and pets, like we have a range of of socially acceptable behaviors. We might call them manners, right? There are skills you need to have in order to be a good member of society, a good citizen. If we are arranging the pet's life and our children's life so that they are learning those skills and the behaviors that are going to help them be successful members of society are the ones that are getting reinforced and the things that they may try out because you know, they're three and in a restaurant, these are not going to serve you as an adult. So we're going to set up the situation so that your learning skills replace those. And we do, you know, we do the same thing with dogs. These are the things you need to know how to do to live in my house and to be a good companion and to be safe. And so that I'm safe with you and people come to my house are safe. And we can do the activities together that we enjoy because it, the relationship should be enriching both ways. Again, we have pets for our benefit and they should have us for theirs. So, it, you know, we got to look at, at both sides of that. And if one of the things that you enjoy is buying like a lot of fancy collars so that your dog has a, a new fashionable collar every day of the week, I think that's fine. I mean, contribute to the economy, right? Capitalism, yay. So there are weirder hobbies. I, that's fine. <laughs> there, there, there absolutely. What I'm saying is I think there are lots of ways we can both get our needs met and it doesn't take away from the other's individual needs. Where the internet is also highly judgmental is on the quality of that relationship with an animal versus with a child. And that always comes up when someone has lost their animal and they make a Facebook post about how it was like losing their baby. And then invariably someone takes umbrage with that and it becomes a, a flame war that I have read too many times to possibly ever have the patience to read again. And I, I'm not going to tell someone how they're feeling 
or not feeling. I just don't know what the value is of engaging in that discussion. And I don't have kids. So, but I have lost pets and I know what that's like. And I only know what's going on. And, you know, in the five inches between my ears, I can't speak to anyone else. So opinions about other people's experience. Yeah. Everyone has an opinion, particularly on the internet. I saw a meme recently, maybe Brene Brown or or somebody was sharing it that like suffering isn't a competition. I think grief isn't a competition. So it doesn't matter how sad you might be about losing your pet compared to how sad somebody else might be about losing their pet. Like, so the, the whole like, oh, it's just a dog air quotes is, well, that's just insensitive regardless. That's nothing to do with, with pet ownership. That's just being kind of a crappy person. Well, we can't end on a topic of, of uh, <laughs> grief about your dog dying. Let's turn back to this. We talked about how the positive reinforcement with animals can contribute to positive reinforcement when dealing with other people. And we will link folks to that episode. But then you've had other episodes where that's then turned around to make a whole self-help philosophy of using the skills that you've learned in training dogs to positively reinforce yourself, your own behavior. Can you say a little more about that cycle and how this is not just about the weird relationships that we have with our animals or keeping them in control so they can flourish while still keeping everybody safe around them, but that this can actually be something to help motivate yourself day to day. Yeah. I mean, there's like a a running joke in the training community that for the most part, so almost none of us get into animal training because we really love having relationships with humans. Like most of us kind of get into animal training because at first we think we like animals better than people. And then it turns out that animals can't write checks and we still have to pay the mortgage. So we must learn the skills to develop relationships with people. And so there's a joke that we would be better off getting a degree in social work rather than animal behavior because our job has more in common with like being a family therapist or counselor than like a circus animal trainer. You definitely have sounded like my therapist several times today. (laughs) and I'm feeling really good about it. I'm just loving my free session here. Yeah. When I'm working with a family with a pet, my client is really the relationship, right? It's the space that interface between the human and animal behavior. So just like with people. The only organism's behavior that you can really control is your own. So if I want to influence my dog's behavior, the only way that I can really do that is by changing my behavior. So I change my behavior so that I'm giving him the information that he needs to know what to do, that the behaviors that I want are the ones that happen and that get reinforced and that that becomes the habit. You know, those he learns the skills, they become the habit and that's how, you know, that becomes a lifestyle, right? And if I'm in an instructor position, the only way that I can influence your pet dog is by changing my behavior to influence your behavior so that your behavior influences your dog. So the more layers that I put in there, the better I have to be at understanding and managing my own behavior. It's not my favorite part, honestly. Like personal growth is really hard. It takes a lot of work and the payoff is never really that obvious. Certainly not right away. So I draw a lot of a lot of parallels with parenting just because that's a, a common experience that people have. And you know, you've had the situation where you realize that yelling at your kid isn't gonna help, yelling at your dog isn't gonna help. So you have to control your behavior to do something different. You know, your dog is barking at the front door. UPS guy is dropping off today's Amazon Prime delivery. Your dog is barking, you're on a Zoom meeting. This is you know, every day, everybody's every day for the last year. And you have a couple of options. Kind of the default option most of us are going to go to is to yell, knock it off, right? Or something like that. And maybe the first time that interrupts your dog's barking because they're startled. If you don't yell, knock it off a lot, maybe they're surprised the first time. But pretty quickly, that surprise is going to wear off and they're going to just bark right over. And now, oh, you're barking, mom's barking, everybody's barking. We're barking together. Yay, we chased the bad guy away and he left some boxes again. We're winning. But let's say that it really matters to me. So so for example, I'm getting on a Zoom call. 
I know that one yelling, knock it off is doesn't look very professional, especially if I'm appearing as my professional self. I need to have a different behavior to put in that spot. And maybe one that's gonna be more effective. A more sure way to reduce my dog's barking in that context is to throw food. So whenever I sit down at a Zoom or record a podcast, I have a bag of dog food nearby or a little bowl of dog food. And as soon as I see the UPS truck starting to pull in the driveway, I'm going to cue all of my dogs to lay on their beds if they're not already. And I'm going to start throwing food because this is a practiced behavior for me. It's a fluid behavior for me. I can keep talking and not lose my, my stream while dispensing food. Now, this is something that I do, again, professionally. So not everybody's going to be that smooth, but you can too. It's just like learning to drive a car or play a piano. It just takes practice. But in order to do that, again, I have to plan ahead. So there's a, a whole cognitive task for me. I have to have a plan for what I'm going to do to solve this problem. And that plan needs to be developed when you're not in the heat of it, right? The worst time to try and change a behavior is while it's occurring. (laughs) That's when you're most likely to fail and get frustrated. So I have to plan ahead. And so before I sit down and start the Zoom call, I need to make sure that my environment is set up for success. So I have the tools that I need. In this case, you know, just food and, you know, beds. All that comes down to my behavior and arranging the environment. But that's the only way that I can change what my dogs do. Just so our listeners know, we're on camera among each other. And I so wish the UPS truck would show up right now because I want to see Hannah's, I want to see her moves. I am impressed with all of, how many dogs do you have? I have four. And they're just like lying in their beds. They haven't made a sound. They look completely serene right now. No drugs involved. They were not given a, a sleeping powder. And they didn't get a 30-minute walk this morning. I guarantee that. So <laughs> so speaking of behavior and what you can see it doing like right away and how you have to change your own, I have actually an example of how me changing my behavior had immediately good results. And now I wasn't an expert at this, but I'm going to share this. So the other day, my cat had something wrong with his stool and I had to give him a bath. And I had to do it by myself because my husband was working and he couldn't get away from his desk. Do you wear armor? No, no. You know, it it would be a good idea. Our last cat who passed away about two years ago now loved baths for some reason. He like he wasn't asking for them. But if you gave one to him, he would put his head like right under the faucet. He didn't mind it. This cat, he wants to rip your arms off. So what I tried to remember is the more nervous that I get and frustrated I get with my cat and the more worried I am about him scratching me, the more he's going to want to scratch because he's going to feed off of my energy. So I put a very firm hand on him. I tried to use very calming, a very calming voice and it wasn't the most pleasant thing. And he did scratch me once. But I learned from a previous time trying to bathe him that when he scratched me and I got upset and yelled, that made it worse. So he gave me, I guess, in that first time, some negative reinforcement because he scratched, I screamed, he got worse. This time he scratched, I got quiet and soothing and we got through the bath. It wasn't pleasant. I don't want to do it again. But there's always room for improvement when it comes to cat baths, as far as I'm concerned. I don't know about (laughs) dog baths, but... (laughs) And just to like validate you and anybody else listening, screaming when you get scratched or bitten is a very reasonable human response. So there's that's a totally normal thing to do. And again, that's why when that happens, is not the time to think of how you're going to handle being scratched because you are a reactive animal in that moment. So it's thinking you do between bath number one and bath number two, what could I do differently this time? And yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Like in almost no situations does yelling help. It's almost always going to make it worse, no matter who you're interacting with. And 
being a little bit more thoughtful and using that big forebrain that we have that gives us an opportunity to do some of that planning and talking down and emotional regulation that we can do. That's nearly always going to give us a better outcome. Well, well, one other thing, which I don't want to end on a downer. Maybe it's not a downer. Maybe it's just a downer for me. But just to tie it back to some of the things we did in getting ready for this episode. I did watch the first episode of a show called Pooch Perfect, which is a competitive dog grooming show. I don't know if anyone else saw any of that with Rebel Wilson as the host and these people groom dogs. I made the decision not to. Okay. I wish I hadn't. It was, you know, it's not like, oh, we're going to make these dogs look nice. It's like the challenge is to make it look like a different kind of animal. And so it was like all like the crazy grooming and trimming and dyeing and unsurprisingly, just Googling it returns results for like criticism and whether it's animal cruelty or not. And even if dogs like getting groomed, they don't like getting groomed for four hours, I don't think. And I was just horrified. And I didn't know if anyone else had a chance to see this. I I want to be validated in thinking that this was the worst. We watched the beginning and then fast forwarded to just to see some of the what they came up with. And like, once it was, oh, look, I made this dog's butt into an elephant's face with the tail being the trunk. Like, uh, uh, no, that's enough of that. We don't need to dye the an- right. our animals, all sorts of, make them circus freaks. <laughs> I have not seen this show, but I have seen examples of some of the things that you're talking about. And there are some extreme examples, but I mean, they're, they're art, right? They're sculpting, usually from a poodle, because they have the, the coat that you can really scissor into a lot of shapes. And if the question is, is this animal cruelty? I don't have enough information for that. I don't think that dyeing a dog's hair in and of itself is automatically going to be cruel. I mean, I personally have sat for highlights before and it's real hard for me. It's not a skill that I learned. That was a decision you made. It was a decision I made. <laughs> I won't make again. Plus, it's really expensive. So the payoff's not worth it. But there are a lot of people for whom sitting still and looking at their phone for two hours is not suffering. They would be totally fine with that. As long as the dogs are properly conditioned and prepared. There is a space where it may not be to your taste, but that it isn't necessarily automatically abusive, right? Like that's a really strong word to use for bad haircuts. I really don't think that the dog is embarrassed that his butt looks like an uh, an elephant. I don't think they have body image issues the way that we do. I'm a little worried that there is a a jackass effect that's going to go on, that maybe it's being done humanely on the TV show, but someone's going to then try it at home on their own dog and they're not going to use dyes that are safe and all these other things. And when you like do something like Johnny Knoxville to yourself and break all your bones, well, at least you you should have known better. But when you then, you know, use some sort of writ dye on your dog and they get hepatitis, well, now you or whatever it is. I mean, because apparently there are organ damage because, you know, these little dogs and they I feel like there could be really inhumane things that happen when people try to replicate what they're seeing on the TV screen. And there's not a whole do not try this at home thing happening on this program. That should be a call out for sure. Yeah, I mean, for sure. People make bad choices. Well, my bad choice was watching, but I was able to (laughs) not watch episode two. So I recovered. Yeah. Fortunately, the vast majority of people who try to go into that kind of a grooming project totally unprepared are going to end up worse than Erica trying to give her cat a bath. So I I think that in in many cases, it will be a very short-lived project and they'll move on to other things. So, But I, I mean, I do think that's a reasonable thing to throw out there before starting any new personal project is to do a reasonable amount of research and educate yourself before you get started. Well, the closest I would have come to something in that area is trying to figure out how long I spent good money on this pet Halloween costume or Santa hat. How long will I force my dog to wear the Santa hat before he knocks it off? Probably not that long. (laughs) 
balancing priorities of the cuteness versus the comfort. Yeah, we got to just refer folks to your cast to more detailed, enlightening things. But we, we got to touch on a lot of topics. Thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hannah has a book and a podcast. So we will be linking to both of those things. But I just wanted to give you space in case you wanted to say anything about either of those. My podcast is Drinking from the Toilet. I mean, full disclosure, it is intended for dog behavior nerds. So it's a commitment. But if you are really interested in learning a lot more about behavior and training, you might might check it out. I mean, again, the only animal's behavior we can really control is our own. So that's really what it's about. And I think a lot of us, you know, get real nerdy about it because, you know, we start off thinking we want to know more about our dog's behavior. And what we really end up being curious about is, is how the world works. So we can get kind of deep like that sometimes. Love it. Sweet. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And bye, listeners. Bye, listeners. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.